Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of everything going on in European technology. Today, I'm talking with Martin Shalom, partner at Innovation Nest, a Krakow-based early-stage seed fund focusing on B2B software companies. I met Martin a couple of months ago when we jumped on a Zoom call and proceeded to talk about technology for almost 90 minutes. This podcast tries to be an extension of that conversation. We cover topics like his edge as an investor, the importance of networks in early stage investing, the future of venture capital, why Poland is a great place to start a company, and much, much more. I had a lot of fun, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Let's start by you telling me, but mostly the audience, a bit about Innovation Nest and what you guys do. Okay, so the, the short story is that Innovation Nest uh, you know, started around 10 years ago with our first fund that was focused on Poland. It was like a, like a pilot for us. So there was just a few people in the fund. So there was like four of us at the beginning. And, and roughly 10 years ago, the Polish government started to invest and develop like the, the eco the VC ecosystem. So they've launched several initiatives uh, to help first like uh, launch accelerators, then help private capital to raise uh, uh, funds with the support of, of, a, of a fund of funds uh, that was set up by the, by the government. So the, the, the caveat was, was that, you know, most of those initiatives were somehow focused on, on Poland alone. So no one was able to invest outside of, of Poland. So it was very limiting, right? So for the first you know, few years of us investing and then trying to find our sort of sweet spot and space, we were experimenting with many different things. We, we started off with a very broad thesis. We, we knew we wanted to invest in like internet-based companies, right? So that was pretty broad. We knew um, that we were sort of leaning towards B2B more than B2C, although uh, we as partners in the fund had previous B2C experience. So Piot, who is the, uh, the managing partner of the fund, he started in the 90s, he started Onet.pl, which was the, the Yahoo of Poland, and then he sold it in early 2000s. Marek, who is the, 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 third, the, the second partner, he was the CEO of Onet for several years, and then he, he ran various sort of operations in, in the B2C space, mostly based on the advertising model. He, he dealt with like the emerging advertising, like online advertising market. I was at a, a small startup here in, in Krakow that was building social networking sites for, for teams. That was pre-Facebook. So my role as a product manager was to basically uh, come up with all the crazy ideas of how we can monetize the site with uh, premium SMSs because that's that was our main revenue stream. We didn't sort of rely on ads at the time, so that was kind of different. But anyhow, you no, know, we, we we started in, like investing, and and you know many different opportunities were were presented to us. But somehow we were leaning towards that B two B approach, and that was like the first few years, the foundation of our our current investment thesis. We, we knew that probably we, we are entering this, this mega trend of software being transitioned from legacy on-prem, on-prem software to, to the cloud, right? And we, we stumbled upon a problem, right? So with the, with the fund that we had at the time and its limitation to, to Poland as the only geography where we could invest, it didn't make sense, right, from, from an investment perspective to focus on B2B comp- like software companies in Poland alone, right? So we knew uh, that you know, the, the, the goal for us is basically to, to, to raise a second fund or the first real fund, right? And the entire journey started, I think, in uh, 2016 or, or, or 17, somewhere around that time, when we, when we turned to EIF, so the European Investment Fund, to be the sort of cornerstone investor as an LP. And it was a very long process. So in between, we, we, we started investing from, from like a separate a special purpose vehicle that we set up so that we could, already, we could already do investments outside of Poland, but it was very limited in terms of the cash that we had available. So we've, we've done some investments in the US. We've done some investments in Europe. 
we even done an investment in South Africa, which was kind of crazy. But you know, uh, the company got acquired uh, a few years uh, later. So I think all, all in all, what is innovation as in, in one sentence? It's a, it's a seed-focused fund that invests in pan-European B2B software companies. To be more specific, um, I think we'll, we'll sort of talk about it later, but, but we have three main sort of objectives or, or, or areas where we want to find companies or at the, at the intersection of those, uh, those areas or trends. One, it's definitely the, the cloud. So we believe that most of the IT spent in the coming years or, or decades will be on, on cloud-based software or products. Second, uh, once everything is in the cloud, we believe that then the data element will actually pick up on, on weight and, and, and will be the defining factor when it comes to building value. So, so when you have cloud data, the third component we, we, we believe might sort of characterize the successful companies of the future will be automation, right? Because if you, if you have everything in the cloud, you have access to data from multiple sources. And, you know, the machine learning algorithms are getting better or we, we, we can enter the, the, the state of AI, right, uh, full on. Then I think we will see that most software will be much more automated than now, right? So I can't imagine that in the future we will be entering manually things into forms, right? I think that's going to be the role of, of that automation. So... Where we are right now, we are in, uh, in year three of the investment cycle for the fund. We have two more years uh, to, to go in terms of investing in, in, in companies. We've invested in 16 companies so far. We are investing out of a 40 million fund. So we still are looking to find maybe eight, maybe 10 more companies for this portfolio. And then we will hopefully raise the third fund to continue investing. So that's, that's pretty much it. You mentioned the intersection of cloud, data, and automation. Do you consider that your sort of edge as a fund? Or how do you think about your edge as an investor or as a fund? Um, it's, it's actually something that is, that is evolving. It's a constant iteration on, on what we consider to be our differentiator, right? When we started those three years ago with the second fund, we, we had a very simple idea. So basically, if you look at the seed stage in, in Europe and you narrow it down to B2B software, there aren't many funds uh, that invest in multiple geographies, so pan-European, right? You rather have like seed funds that are generalistic and they invest in their own sort of geography, be it one country or be it like a region, for example, the Nordics, uh, or be it a country like, like, like Poland or Germany. But because of this limiting factor in terms of, you know, how many B2B software, great B2B software companies you can find in one single country, right? You have to be pan-European, right? But then again, seed stage is tricky, right? Should you be close to those companies? Should you be like very deeply sort of ingrained into the local ecosystem to source the best founders, the best teams? Um, and something very difficult. So when we first thought about our first edge or differentiator was, was, was exactly that. So that we will be the go-to seed fund for B2B software, pan-European, right? So whatever the company might be, we, we want to be there. But then, you know, what we started seeing is that as more and more funds emerge locally, uh, like the generalistic funds focus on seed, the biggest proportion of the, of the, of the portfolio is B2B software anyway that edge kind of disappeared quite, quite rapidly. And if you, if, you, if you sort of look at the data and, and how many new local funds were raised over the last three, four years, that the competition increased massively, right? So we had to find another edge. So we, we like to like operate in a very iterative sort of uh, uh, way. So, so we, we took what was working for us. So, you know, because we were this... B2B focused pan-European investor, we, we managed to invest in three B2B software companies in Portugal, for example. We took that and we added something on top. So because we already had a portfolio of B2B software companies, we, we could provide so, some more insights as to you know, how, how to sort of get from, from this initial seed stage to Series A, because that's our uh, sweet spot, right? So, so we could be uh, adding a bit more and more value right, to those founders that we uh, find, even though that there might be some generalistic local funds that still you know, do B2B, they don't have 
that much sort of insight and, and knowledge, like portfolio know-how when it comes to B2B as a, as a like SaaS B2B as a, as, as a model, as, as we do, because we have only those companies, right? But then that also started to wear thin, right? Because, you know, there, there are funds like Point Nine, which are obviously investing pan-European. We see that there is more and more competition from um, London-based funds that are also targeting B2B SaaS, you know, and, and, and they go on going very early. So one of the, the, the realizations or the iterations that we've made was that if you start doing deep dives on certain areas, right, it's starting to get easy to source companies. And, and we just talked about, I think it was before you started recording, we talked about the research or the deep dive that we've done into flexible workspaces and software for that particular market. We started off with one or two companies, then we, we, we researched another 15 or 20, right? So, and they were in all different places around Europe. So we, we think that one of the, the edges that we might have, or like we, we are almost having right now, is that we are developing these, these micro theses, which allow us to be uh, not only providing value in terms of the B2B SaaS model, but also providing value in terms of specific markets those companies operate on. And I don't know if it's unique for us, if it's a long-term edge that we can have, but what we found over the last few months is that when you apply this kind of logic of going deep into a certain market, you, you start to see things that maybe other investors are not seeing. And this is the kind of feedback that we also get from founders. Like when we, when we engage with founders, they, they uh, usually tell us that they are surprised that we know so much about their, their, their micro market, right? Uh, because, for example, it's not a very obvious market for others. So, so yeah, I would say that B2B, pan-European, investing within some, some, some narrow micro theses, that, that's our edge right, right now. How, how do you work or how do you go about developing those micro theses? Like, where do you start? How's the process? I think that's the most difficult part about it. So like when I was reading into the subject of how different investors approach this, so there, there are typically investors who uh, say that it's very difficult as an investor, it's very difficult to spot the next trend or the next market that's going to explode because you don't have that, uh, that insight, right, as, as founders do. So, so you are better off, you know, being open to everything. And when the right founding team comes along, then, then you can sort of jump on that. The, the other sort of narrative, uh, which is in, in opposite to that, is that you can develop these micro theses because you research for them through companies. So, so you, you get these signals, right? Uh, you maybe come across a company that uh, is the first company of a market on a market uh, that you never knew about. And then you start researching around the company, then around the market. And then if it sparks your interest, then you can build a thesis around it, right? So to give you an example, currently we, we are looking at, at a deskless workforce. So basically everyone who, who is working without the use of a traditional computer or laptop, right? So basically all the people in the field, the frontline workers, the, the people at, at, on the shop floor in restaurants, right? What sort of software do they use, if they use anything? Uh, what sort of um, processes do they have? How do they interact with, I don't know, the, the, the HQ of the company? And so on and so on. And you start peeling off that onion and, and, and you discover, okay, wow, there is this inefficiency or there is this more, a large player on the market. So then you start researching for companies. So who is building something for, for this exactly? So so we've done, we're doing that for for. for the, that's workforce. We, we are doing that for salary finance, which is a thing right now. As we were doing it for salary finance, we came across a very similar problem or challenge for for companies. So, so like, how do you how how is the financing landscape for uh, small businesses changing? Right, like, how can you finance a small e-commerce business? Right, based on data and, and some automation. So those are the kinds of things that we are uh, applying when it comes to finding those, those areas where to do those deep dives. And for the companies, where are you looking at that the rest of the investors aren't? Do you think like local networks play any role in sourcing these early stage deals? Yeah, like we, 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 we regularly 
sort of analyze our our pipeline what are the sources of those those companies right how do we come across those companies and i think it comes as a, as a no surprise that 70 something percent of the companies that do interest us are somehow coming off the network right be it like the local network or the the more extended network so what we believe as a, as a fund is that it's it's very difficult to know everything about everything so you need to have you need to be part of a network uh, that picks up the different signals in, in, in the different sort of parts of the investors. So like basically syndicate investors, when you've invested with someone, you know, two, three times, you get to speak regularly and then you get to discuss different companies, different uh, areas, different markets. And sometimes, you know, great companies emerge out of that. Sometimes you you have these local connectors, I call them. So basically people who know uh, very deeply the local ecosystem. And to give you an example, Philippe from, from Infraspeak, which is our Portuguese investment, runs this co-working space in, in Porto. So he, he knows the, the startup scene very well. He, he knows who is looking for funding at any given time. You know, people come to him for advice also. So like there are these sort of nodes on the network that you can tap into for, for sourcing. These networks exist, but they are not interconnected. So what we see is that London is a very strong and dense network. So pretty much if someone, if some interesting company is, is raising money and they might be like in a stealth mode, no one knows about them, the right people know about that deal, right? And they share it. And, and then, you know, the round is announced and everyone is surprised, well, like how did, how would, how did we miss that? When it comes to Central Eastern Europe, this network is building and, and I, would, I would sort of wager, I guess, that, that it's building because many of the funds have the same LP, which is EIF. So like if you look across, you know, Estonia to from like Poland and then Bulgaria, like there are funds where EIF is invested and we know each other, right? Because I don't know, we, we, we even go to the same event hosted by EIF in Luxembourg. So like th that's that network, right? Then there is also like the, the function, I would call it the functional network of B2B SaaS, right? So we used to run these SaaS meetups quite regularly. We run them in Poland and then they gathered people from, from the region. So, so that was a network already. And there's also the, the, v, like the, 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 the broader VC network. So we are also doing something which is called the VC meetup uh, in Warsaw. And I think we've started three years ago with just a bunch of people, I don't know, maybe 20 investors in the room. And, and by now, the, the, the list of attendees grew to several hundred uh, of investors, right, that participated in the meetup. So I think, yes, definitely. The short answer is it, that, like networks are a, a source. Uh, I've been thinking about networks for, for a while. And what I've seen is networks or, or sub-networks uh, and the nodes within those networks are, are key for uh, essentially for company building and it could be anything from the yc network and what they've developed or the ef network and what they've developed what i've been trying to, to sort of answer uh to myself and i haven't reached to, to answer yet is can we actually take those networks uh, online? Like what's the software, software layer of those networks? Can we build them, but still retain the power of the network? Like what, what, what do you think? Mm. Well, what we are currently investigating is if, if you would have two types of networks, if you would have a public network, that is open, right? So basically anyone can join. The conversations are public, so like everyone can see what, what's being discussed versus private uh, networks, right? Uh, are people willing to share the same things, right? On those the two different types of networks. Which type of network do people value more? The sort of exclusive, you know, invite-only small network or the inclusive, open, anyone can join type of a network, right? And for now, our sort of understanding of, of value is in, in small, very deeply connected networks, right? So to give you an example, within, within our portfolio companies, we have companies that went through all the major US accelerators. So we have a YC-backed company, a Techstars-backed company, 500 Startups-backed company, Alchemist-backed company, and even we have a Seedcamp 
backed company when it comes to Europe, right? So I think that covers pretty much everything, right? And, and, and to be honest, like we as an investor, although we have those companies in the portfolio, never benefited from, from, from the networks those, those founders have built, right? Within those accelerators. So, so, so that's, that there is a divide or there's a bridge, right? That you have to, to cross to, to tap into that. But on the other hand, we, we, are, we are constantly benefiting from a uh, small network, which is private. And, and basically these are like a uh, few investors from, from the region that we constantly talk to, right? And, and there's like a live conversation going about you know, deals that, that we are working on and, and, and founders and, and markets, right? So, so I think there is a fine line between building a large connected network that is open to everyone, right? And that provides value versus something that, that is much more closed and, and exclusive, which, which provides a different kind of value. I think we will have both, both networks. So even LinkedIn as an open network is, is, is an example, right? So like if you, if you spend in our industry long enough and you build those connections, then you can pretty much reach everyone as a second connection, right? On, on LinkedIn with a warm introduction, right? Uh, so that's the power of that network. But that network is useless if to, to, to get inbound leads or deals from the network itself, right? Uh, you have to have a much more sort of uh, a much deeper connection to some nodes on the networks for, for those nodes to, to be able to share the, the, the good deals, right, with you. So, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my perspective for now. Will we see a pan-European network of investors that, that, is, that is useful and, and is sharing like really valuable I don't know, content or deals? I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a few different networks, mostly connected through like syndicates. So, so basically the investors that are investing with each other constantly, they will, they will, they will, they will sort of share everything and that will create the network. And it's, it's even visible in the data, right? So if you look at who's investing with whom, most often you can already spot the network, right? So Crandom and Point Nine would be one example. And then the sort of um, uh, London-based fund. So yeah. I think that's because the size of the network change the dynamics. So if the network is small, then it's not a zero-sum game. Like you can actually all invest together. But when, once yeah. the network starts getting bigger or pan-European, then investing in the best companies becomes a zero-sum game and then the incentives are not aligned to invite people. So the challenge at the end of the day becomes how can you build small private networks at scale without fucking up the, the incentives? Yeah, and I think I think maybe I don't know what, what what do you think? Maybe the answer is that there's going to be, or there already is a pan-European network, which is like the the top level, right? And then there's going to be sub-networks that are sort of part, but but they're exclusive. So we we know kind of know each other, like everyone knows each other, but then you know certain people better, right? And, and yeah. that's your sub-network. Yeah. So if, if I had to think about it, I and this is like a purely like software abstraction but i'd have like one big sort of room which is the pan-european network and then i had i I have something like breakout rooms where Mm -hmm. and you as a fund that intersects between b2b SaaS and certain geos for instance you'd be in a couple of breakout rooms where you start getting this sort of network effects because if you invest with the same companies in the same sort of geos or, or or, or industries or whatever, then for those companies, like that, like the strength of that network should, in theory, benefit the, the companies, right? But it's not, it's not a simple answer, I guess. Yeah, and then there also might be a, a human element, like a human character element. So like, let's, let's, let's take conferences, for example, as, as another type of a network, right? If, if you travel the, you know, conference route long enough like in europe you you see the same people and those people hang out in the same sort of circles but those circles like are are closed right so uh, it's uh, you could have a conference like i don't know sas talk for example and there's like hundreds of people at the conference but to get to that inner circle of that you know the, the the highest value network right it's super difficult right 
So, so I think, you know, people want to be connected or associated with peop- other people that are somehow viewed as successful or the ones who create the most value within, within the network. But in order to establish that connection, I think it takes a lot of time and, and, and you have to give a lot before you can take from, from that. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a challenge that's, that's not easy to solve. It could be easy to solve on a software layer or a software sort of product. And there's like Signal, right, for example, yep. uh, which, which some people sign up for. And then I, I get these requests or I get these you know, notifications from Signal that someone connected with me, whatever. But I think, I think a more valuable network is your sort of 20-person WhatsApp group that you hang out all, all with all the time, right, and exchange information. Yeah, well, the, the, as you said, the software side is the easy side. Um, whatever the software side is the easy side, then that's a very, very bad indicator. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot easier to, to, to fix software than humans. <laughs> I'm going to pull Definitely. us out of the rabbit hole. Oh, we don't have a question. Just change directions a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What feel like, as you said, you, you develop micro thesis, right? What field sectors uh, look dumb or weird right now, but in a few years may look mainstream or much, much bigger than they are currently? So an example could be esports, for for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for, for us, it's a bit difficult. So so we are this boring B2B SaaS investor, right? So esports sounds super exciting. And I think if you if you go back, you know, even two years ago, right? This wasn't a thing yet. I think there were like people who, who, who were into that and, and it was like the early days. I remember a friend of mine who had a, a company in the B2B space uh, you know, around languages and language learning. He pivoted into like esports and like he was failing with the first idea. But when he pivoted to esports, he, he, like the company basically exploded. So yeah, the, definitely there are these areas that, that sort of feel uncomfortable right now because not many people understand them you know obviously the in, like if you look at the last five years probably like blockchain and then bit like cryptocurrencies were, were one of those areas where people like were saying like do we really need that you know how, how is it going to change anything and like looking even at, at union square ventures right uh, where they are a very thesis driven fund so like if, if, if you look at the different uh theses that they've invested in over the years over the funds the latest one was around this decentralized web. And if you look at the investments that they've made within that thesis, some of them, you know, m- might seem kind of, yeah, is it really going to work? It sort of feels very uncomfortable today. In terms of us, we have a challenge with that, right? Because as I mentioned in, in, in the beginning, you know, we, we, we follow those, those three sort of lines of, you know, the cloud, the data, and the automation element. And this sort of applies to pretty much all the business-related processes that are known, right? So basically, you could take accounting, you, you could take payroll, you could take marketing, you could take verticalized approach, you know, be it the logistics market or be it, I don't know, hospitals, whatever, right? But, but these concepts are well-known, and then you are just trying to apply new software sort of in, in those areas. Whereas I think that the, the biggest fun or the, 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 the biggest innovation that we are seeing right now is in, is in sort of completely new ways of doing something or creating markets or products that haven't existed in the, in the past. And this is something where we don't quite fit. But even having said that, I think a good example right now would be something so obvious and in plain sight as, as e-commerce, right? So if you think about what, what COVID has created, like in terms of market momentum, because of, of lockdowns in so many countries, People that even today never bought anything online were forced, seriously forced to buy something online. So for them, it was a, a totally new experience that kind of probably felt maybe not, not that natural. But because they've tried it, I think it might actually create a new group of people, new consumers that, that will somehow post-COVID also choose to buy online, right? So, so for them, it will feel more and more comfortable. And then, you know, when you think about the aspects of something so simple as buying a, a product online, what, what isn't currently working efficiently? So we look at logistics and, you know, 
typically you would order something and a courier would deliver it to to, to your house or your, your your office but but you know what are the, the the other ways this could be done that kind of feel strange you know could this be could people deliver stuff to some um, strangers you know place and then you pick it up from them you know sort of like a, an airbnb model for pickups or other things you know so so those are the the kinds of things you could you could think of when it comes to our areas um nothing feels that weird uh, that we would sort of notice that right so so maybe that's just the, the characteristic of b2b how, how it is um, i don't know what do you think like do you see any areas within b2b that kind of feels strange right now i think i, I agree and, and maybe that this was more on the consumer side but the way i try to articulate what you've been saying is that what i think where the future is is going i think is applying machine learning and AI to every sort of level and process at the enterprise, for instance. So you were saying about shipping and logistics, that's one. Uh, accounting, there's this company that came uh, out of EF called Tractable, and it's a perfect example. They apply uh, machine learning to identify insurance damage, and they seriously speed up and make the insurance claim process a lot better and a lot cheaper, of course, like there is no human doing it, which makes it a lot. Yeah. So like that, that's a perfect example and, and, and applying that towards sort of the entire spectrum of the enterprise is where I think uh, things are, are going. And, and this sort of laps um, or interlaps with a post I wrote to my newsletter, which I also sent to you on, on the death of the tech company and, and where sort of the niche and the acquisitions that we'll see over the next 10 years uh, will be. And I think that's around deep tech, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the challenges that, that we might have as a fund or, or I might have personally is that, you know, even what you described about Trackable, you know, we, we don't sort of see that as, as, as uncomfortable, unusual, something weird, right? For us, it's like super obvious. This, this, this has to work like this, right? Um, there's even a, another company, in, I think, based in Germany, they just raised a, a larger round called, I think, Gold that uh, automates bookkeeping for for small businesses when you switch seats right let's assume you are a small business owner today right and yeah because of COVID, you had to digitize so many things around your business for for many of those things they might feel very uncomfortable for you today right because you're doing them the first time right and you are not even you, you are not even sort of aware that it could be done so easily but it will feel like second nature in just a few weeks and then you will not want to go back to, to how we were doing things before COVID. So I think there's definitely a, an entire spectrum of, of processes that will be accelerated around software, B2B software for the end user or the end buyer as we sort of accelerate with, with the cloud and data and, and automation. But for us as investors, I think what, what, what may be kind of feels uh, strange or, or, or uncomfortable today is uh, or, or what we were hoping to to see is a next platform shift and and this is something that that we were sort of betting on as the next revolution in software so basically if you if you go 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 back in history you know from pcs to the internet to mobile People were expecting that maybe AR or VR will be the next platform on top of which you will see an entire spectrum of new software being built, right? The decentralized web thesis might be another sort of way of thinking about the next platform, right? Or blockchain, for a matter of fact. But but it hasn't quite materialized. So I think we, we are currently stuck on this, you know, mobile internet cloud platform where, you know, you have billions of people connected to the network. You have more and more products and services available on that platform that, uh, that are already good enough to use, right? So even if you think about you know, you know, banking or accounting or all those boring sort of things, they are being more consumerized every day and, and they feel like using Facebook. And I, I know that many people sort of use that uh, relation, but I think this is really what, what's happening, right? So, so we are, we are like you could follow the the Carlota Perez, you know, um, uh, yep. framework, right, for for describing this. So I th- I think, you know, we have gone to, to the next phase, and and now we are just going to see that so many things will actually start to work better, and not going to be huge innovations, 
but they're just going to make our life easier, faster, better. Then we can probably agree that the rate of innovation is slowing down or has completely slowed down uh, at this uh, point. How do you think that's going to affect venture capital over the next uh, decade, let's say? I, th I think this this pace of innovation is not not evenly spread. So like, if you think about software, like pure software, like business applications and things like that, yeah, I, th I think this is slowing down somehow. But then when you when you when you look at other areas of tech, so like biotech, for example, lab uh, produced meat to be very specific, everything that's that's happening around renewable energy, we we see a comeback to, to that. I think those those things will be accelerating, and we will see much more innovation in those fields. And I think I think it was Peter Thiel that that somehow uses this this analogy that if if you look at if you look at medical research, right? Let's take various types of cancer. We haven't seen that much progress, uh, even though you know those those th th that research has been funded for for decades now. And 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 I think. If we shift from funding, you know, the next Facebook or the next Twitter or the next Salesforce to funding those other areas of tech, I, th I think we will see innovation, innovation there. What will those, those areas be? I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of lax capital and, you know, how far out they are sort of investing, right, in all the sort of different areas. There's, there's another fund called 50 Years, which a friend of mine is one of the co-founding partners. And they, they've been like spot on in terms of setting up a fund, which is kind of like frontier tech impact investing. But now because of this acceleration that we are seeing, for example, in the, in the lab produced meat space, they're already seeing like real value being created in, in that area. So yeah, I, I think we, like I wouldn't I wouldn't say we will see a, a slowdown in, in innovation. I would say that probably we are going to see that that innovation accelerate in, in areas that were not sort of the, the the talk of the town for the last decade or so. What do you think? Like, do you do you, do you think we will we will need new social platforms or tools or products, or do we do do you think we will need more business apps in the next two decades? We still need new stuff, uh, but it's always, or it's been for the past, let's say, decade along the same sort of lines, right? What I think is that the rate of innovation, as you said, you put it perfectly, it's, it's not evenly spread out. It's, but I think the current sort of S-curve, it's, it's, it's seriously slowing down and, and, and we're seeing that in a bunch of different ways. We don't know where that next S-curve is going to start. And I think that that's the only thing I know, is that I don't know where the next S-curve is going to start. Uh, and funds, as you mentioned, lacks capital, and I didn't know about, uh, what's the other name? 50 years? Is that the... 50 years, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll check that one out. But I think that's where most of the returns uh, will be over the next 10 to 20 years, I think. Yeah, and, and, and you asked the question, you know, how is VC going to change or develop in the next, you know, 10 years? And I think some things will stay the same. So I think all the large, you know, brand name funds and that have been around for decades, they, they will be around for, for, for more decades, right? Definitely. They will just switch areas where they invest. When it comes to, you know, guys like us or the new funds that will be somehow launched within the next few years, I think it's a serious question. What's going to be the fund model? Where will the returns sort of be? Who will be like buying the companies that you will be funding at the early stage? So, so I think those are all the, the valid questions that, that you might ask. And my, my sort of thinking around it is that if you look at the public SaaS market, so like all the companies that IPO'd in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, as markets grow, those companies are only getting bigger, right? So the gap between any new entrants and them is widening. Those companies, I think, they are more agile than their sort of legacy examples from the past, right? If, if you look at companies like, like you know, even Microsoft, that, that is you know, a few decades old, right? And how they've re-emerged as a leading sort of tech software company, right? Uh, and they transitioned their business. If you look at companies like Adobe, which used to sell, you know, boxed 
CD products, right? Where you would install things uh, and pay, pay just one time a one time license fee to a fully subscription based cloud model, right? Um, and explode it. Then, if you look at Salesforce, which is you know becoming at least in my eyes, is becoming like a software conglomerate, right? Rather than a CRM company. So they are investing across different verticals, right? Buying up other companies and basically expanding the pie. And also on the other side, not allowing anyone else to take their position, right? And, and, and threaten them as, as the market leader. So what I think is going to be the future for funds investing in, in software, which is my space, is that I, that I think the exits will become smaller, right? So I, 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 I don't see a path of funding the next, you know, Decacord in the soft B2B software space. I think, I think either the, the market that's going to be uh, addressed is not going to be big enough, allow for, for such a company to, to emerge, or once the company gets a lot of attention, uh, it will get acquired by someone like Salesforce. So that changes the perspective in terms of, you know, what's the fund model, what's the fund structure, how much you know you want to have uh, in terms of assets under management, right? What's the fund size? I think that's going to be exactly, key. exactly. So I would, I would, I would, I would sort of even argue that we might see, you know, many more smaller funds that only manage, you know, twenty, thirty million, and are managed by you know two people, right? Two, three people at, at, at max, and and they are investing into those 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 companies that are extending the. The platforms, right? So, so for example, I could see a fund focused on funding like Shopify uh, extensions uh, or like marketplace apps. I could also see a fund that is investing in Slack bots, right? I and mean, even Slack has a fund like that. So, I think you you could in, on one side you could think that yes, we have all these kinds of platforms. They they provide a lot of value in terms of distribution. What can we build on top of those platforms? Probably those things will not be bigger than those platforms, right? So, so the exits will be, will be smaller. So then, you know, the fund that you are managing probably can be a lot smaller as well. But it changes the dynamic, right? But it's just like, you know, it's, it's guessing what the future will, will be. And hmm. someone, someone once said, like, if you want to predict the future, don't use any dates or numbers because you can be always way off. But I think uh, directionally, we might be moving towards a different sort of ecosystem. Even like the simple question, like what would you say? Like, do we need hundreds of VCs investing in one particular area? Do we really need that many funds? So should VC, like basically what I'm asking, like should VC as a market be distributed or concentrated? It's, it's a real question because my, my mind immediately goes to more capital is always in that positive. Because for me, like the, the sort of capital talent uh, sort of dynamic is a loop, right? More capital brings mm-hmm. more talent, then you got great talent, you get more capital and so, so on and so forth. But I, I think I, I tend to, to, to agree with, with your sort of outlook. I don't know when, but I think rather soon. The, the problem will be those huge funds. Like, let's say Atomico that raised 800 million last year, for instance. Who do you fund to get acquisitions big enough to return, to have decent returns with a fund well, that big? Well, you, well, you, well then, then, you, then you target companies like Lilium, right? Is that the name of the company that, that produces yeah. those small planes? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely don't fund, you know, the next sort of, yeah, some, some niche software company, right? Because you, you will never ret- like generate those kinds of returns. And then, you know, but even, even with those, you know, large funds uh, raising several hundred million, there's, there's tens, of, tens of them, or maybe even hundreds of them globally, right? <laughs> so like I was doing this research on, on CE and over the last four years, seed funds raised uh, a total of 800 million euro. So there's 800 million euro of assets under management, right? Right now across, I think, 20 something funds or 30 something funds. And if you look at like how many rounds do get made in the region. So to give you a statistic, um, because I've done it recently, just in just this year, so 2020, right? I took the 10 countries of CE. So there's like the three Baltic states, there's Poland, Romania, 
Czechia, Slovakia, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Slovenia, right? So among those countries, there were, in the last almost five months, there were 105 rounds that were announced. So I don't think that's, that's a lot, right? And you have 800 million that needs to be deployed. And then if you go deep and analyze every single round, what type of a company it is, what the potential between, uh, behind all those companies, right? In many cases, you know that it's not going to be a very big outcome. It's not even uh, feasible that it could be big enough. So, so I wonder like, whether this is really the equation or the, the, the closed loop that you mentioned, that more capital attracts more talent and the, the, and the round we go, right? Because if you look at the data, right, when it comes to VC returns, there's a power law distribution, right? Yeah. So as an aggregate, and I think this is, this is an interesting sort of topic to discuss. As an aggregate, VC as an asset class and, and, and as an investment sort of vehicle is, is very important for the, for the global sort of economy, right? Or the economy of any country. Yep. Because if you look at the types of companies that do emerge from you know, being supported by VCs, you know, we wouldn't have Airbnb, we wouldn't have Uber, we wouldn't have many other great companies. But on the flip side, right? If you look at the returns of like particular funds, they're highly concentrated. So that means that for every dollar, there's a certain amount that gets just wasted, right? wasted. It gets invested into the ecosystem. People learn, right? But you know, there's a high rate of failure, right? If you look at the graduation rates of, you know, from seed to making it all the way to IPO, it's just like a fraction. Maybe it's a it's a it's a net positive. So even though that you know we have this 800 million in Central Eastern Europe to be invested, and maybe there's going to be only one more UI path that comes out of it. It's still good because, you know, people will learn, people will experiment. It will, I don't know, increase the, the, the level of, of, of tech and innovation in the, in the, in the region. And, 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 and the returns will come from the aggregate amount, not from the particular investment. Well, but as, an, as an investor, how do you invest on the aggregate, right? So this paper came out from AngelList last year and they... They they say essentially what you what you were saying like returns are, are a power law, so your best bet is not to try to identify the best companies because we all suck at this or most people suck at this is to invest in the index. Now, how do you actually invest in, in the index across a continent and across a million industries? Well, there 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 are some hacks that you could you could apply. So, for example, you could invest um, into five hundred startups, right, as an LP, which is something that. That, that we've actually done in the past. And now we are seeing those returns. So like with the, with the 500 startups strategy, some people framed as um, spray and pray, we are actually seeing that, you know, those returns are coming, right? So, so they, they've scored quite a few good companies, right? When it comes to Europe, you have Kima Ventures. So, yeah. so Kima is investing, I don't know, at a taste of one investment per week or something like that, and that they're like super fast. So they are a good index, I think, of the of the European landscape. But yeah, I, I totally agree that you know picking like one one investment that will, will somehow make it is, is super difficult. Even if you have a portfolio of 20, 30 companies, it's still very difficult to get you know this unicorn into your, your portfolio. Right? And even if you have core the company that that made it all the way. What's your ownership level? Like were you able to to keep your proratas? And then there's like this whole this this entire sort of puzzle of, of behind the scenes, you know, structure round structures and, and who gets pushed out of a round and then is not able to continue to invest and then is just you know stuck with a very small percentage of the company. So 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 I, I believe I believe that the future might be like being specialized in, in being like super focused on, on one one area. And this is quite interesting from a fund perspective and then like pers like personal perspective. So Let's take, I don't know, Axel as an example, right? A great fund. And if you were to say, who are the individuals behind Axel that actually find the next big thing, right? Who are they? And, and what's the dynamic of those individuals? Like, how do they find those companies? Is it because uh, Axel as a brand creates this magnet that basically... Uh, gets them a lot of inbound, or is it that they have some kind of uni you know unique market insight that they know where to look and they find those companies, right? And you know, if, if even if you look at the UI path, 
which was turned down by so many great investors, right? And only the few believed, so like the, the seed camp and, and Credo and, and Early Bird, right? So, so yeah, I, I think, I think that there, there, there are many sort of dynamics that, that show this, this power law distribution within, within the industry. And it's not only on the fund level, it's also on the personal investor level. And then the different sort of countries, because, you know, and, and, and even cities, like you, you cannot compare, you know, Tallinn with London, right? Like, these two are not the same, right? So, so yeah, I, th- I think there is going to be, uh, there is many things that are not even, so they're very uneven in our industry. Yeah, well, it's, I think the, the best way to summarize it, it's sort of a success of, of the successful thing, right? But you, you mentioned Tallinn, which, which I love, the European versus London. Let's let's dive a bit into Poland, into Krakow, um, which is your geo, your home. So you mentioned in an interview, I think a couple of years ago, that Poland has the benefit of being an Eastern European country with the mindset of a Western European country. Why is that? Yeah, it's of course I'm biased, but I, I think if you look at, at, at Poland over the last um, 20 or so, so years, so just after the, the transition, I think we've seen an enormous sort of acceleration of how, how the country looks like, how, how people think, how they are changing their, their mindset and, and their sort of ambitions. And, and there were two, two points like in the, in, in the past that probably were fundamental in this. So one was the transition from a planned economy to an open market economy that, that was in the, in, the, in the 90s, right? So basically, the, the entrepreneurship sort of spirit emerged, right? And people started, you know, opening up small businesses in the very early 90s because they were allowed to. And, and they were, you know, risking, you know, everything they had just, just to build something. And, and we are now seeing after those 20-something, 30, almost 30 years, uh, what kind of companies emerged. So like there's a company called LPP, which is the holding company of several fashion brands. And it's a company that, that does, you know, few billion in, in euro in revenue. And they have uh, stores in, I don't know, 20 or 30 something countries. And they grew in just in three decades, right? And, and I think like in Europe, they're in the top, yeah, I don't want to lie, but, but, but they're pretty high when it comes to the, the fashion sort of industry in terms of those companies. And so that's one example. And then the, the second point that, that was sort of fundamental, I think the road of Poland was, was the accession to the EU, right? So in 2004, we've seen so much capital flow into Poland because of the, the EU programs. So I think that was a, a, an, another ex, like accelerant of growth. And, uh, and I think what would change then is that the, the new generation of entrepreneurs and, and people that, that wanted to build something were already old enough to uh, actually do it. And, and second, they were young enough to, to feel part of Europe, right? Not, not being some, somewhere on the outskirts of Europe. So they started to, I don't know, go on Erasmus programs and then study abroad. Uh, they've built their own sort of international networks of, of, of friends and, and, and connections, right? Um, they started to, to work in international companies that were somehow setting up their, their, their European HQs or some, some offices in, in, in Poland, right? So I think it got more and more international, right? And, you know, it's already been, what, 16 years since um, two, 2004. So, so I think coming back to what I said uh, in, in the past, you know, of this, you know, Western mindset, Poland is still relatively inexpensive uh, compared to Western Europe. So the standard of living, if you are a, an engineer uh, and you, let's say you, you work remotely for some, I don't know, US company or some Western European company, your salary is at such a level that you have a much better standard of living than if you were living in, I don't know, Berlin or Paris or London, right? You can afford a much bigger apartment or even a house. You can, you can pretty much do whatever you want, right? So that's on, 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 on one side. So that's why it's like still Eastern European, I would say. But then when it comes to the Western European mindset, if you travel across the different sort of sea countries, I think what will strike you when you come to Poland is how Western it is. So if you visit Warsaw, the, the sort of central business district of Warsaw around the, 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 the main uh, railway station, 
you have skyscrapers, you know, there's constant construction, there, there are expensive cars, shops, like all the luxury brands, and, and, and people feel cosmopolitan. So I think that, that creates that mindset that people are eager to fight for more ground. So basically, if someone has a company, they want to expand from, from, from day one. Like they don't, just don't, don't want to just build something for Poland alone. They want to expand internationally. And, and I think this is, this is something that, that, you, that you get when you spend time here in Poland. And I think over the last two or three years, more and more international investors started to build this, this narrative around Poland. Like, yeah, this is really something that's up and coming. From a statistical point of view, you know, it's the eighth biggest economy in Europe when it comes to population. It's the biggest country in the, in the region. When it comes to like all those rankings of, you know, doing business and, and other things, it's, 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 it's pretty high up there. And also the, the government, you know, it, it has a set of faults or challenges to, in, in certain areas. But when it comes to supporting entrepreneurship, uh, especially now, I think they're starting to do a very good job, right? So, so they've launched so many initiatives to support young people, young entrepreneurs that want to build companies. And especially the ones that want to export products and services outside of Poland. So, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's what Poland has going on uh, for itself. Compared to other Central uh, Eastern European countries, I, I think our proximity to Western Europe is the differentiator. If you live in, I don't know, Poznan or Szczecin, which are very close to the German border, you can just drive, right, to Berlin and, and, and super close. So, so yeah, I, I would say those, those, those are the sort of uh, things when it comes to Krakow, to be specific. So Krakow is a, is a relatively small city. It's only, you know, 800,000, you know, depending on, on, on the different sort of ways you can look at the, the, the population of Krakow, up to probably like a 1.2 million agglomeration of, of, of the city. But what's, what's, what's really interesting is that for some reason, and to be honest, I don't know why, many international companies have located offices here in, in the city. Maybe it's the engineering talent because we have a good uh, technical school like university. Maybe, I don't know, it's, the, it's the, the local airport, which is constantly growing and is connected to pretty much all the other cities in, in Europe with even, you know, direct flights to, to some U.S. cities. But we have like, you know, Motorola, IBM, ABB, we had Google from the new sort of tech uh, companies. We, we, we have Uber, we have Revolut, I think, has an office here in Krakow. So, so I think it is growing as an outsourcing or offshoring kind of a uh, location. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tourist town. So I think, you know, we've already passed, you know, 10 million uh, visitors to, to, to the city. It's, it's constantly growing its infrastructure. So yeah, and, and, and it's a great city to live in. Do you think there's an opportunity for foreigners, uh, European or not, non-European, to move to Krakow and start a company? Because right now, I think one of the countries that has the monopoly on that, at least in, in a public way, is, is Estonia, right? People move into Estonia yeah. and build companies. Do you think there's an opportunity for Krakow in I that? It's, it's already happening. Uh, it's already happening. So, so I think there are several places around Central Eastern Europe or even Europe. Like you could even sort of consider Portugal as an interesting country. And within, within Portugal, maybe not Lisbon because it's getting a bit more expensive, but, you know, Porto and Braga and, and some other places. But when it comes to, to, to CE, definitely, yes, Tallinn you know, or Estonia is, is the place, right, with the EU residency and, and all the sort of other sort of uh, things that the government is doing to attract uh, businesses. But then, yes, then there's, you know, Krakow when it comes to Poland. Romania is, is also a destination. Bulgaria, I've seen some companies relocate to, to like some founders relocate to, to, to Sofia and, and, and start the companies there. So I, I, I think it's not going to be one place to dominate. I think, and it applies to, to, to Europe as, as a whole, I think we are a, a network of, of connected dots, right? And every dot has its own sort of unique thing that it offers. If you, if you for example, take London, if you are building anything in, in fintech, why would you locate anywhere else than, than in London? You know, you have access to so many things, so many resources. But on the flip side, it's super expensive, very crowded, maybe not a very good place to, to, to live. So, so I think, you know, depending on what you are building, what you actually require, 
if you require, you know, inexpensive engineering talent, then maybe, you know, you will move to, to Kiev and, and, and the Ukraine, right? There is no one right answer. I think it, it all depends. If I was to pitch Krakow as a, as a destination, we are actually discussing this with, with one of my friends who is a site director for, for a company here in the city. And, and we are discussing this concept of open KRK, which is the code for, for Krakow. Uh, so basically, if you look at scale-ups that are coming out of Europe, uh, they're coming out of um, yeah, Paris, Berlin, London, uh, Stockholm, pretty expensive places, right? And, and when you think about the, the, the resources that they will require to grow further, I think there is an option where they could think about locating some of their offices in Krakow, for example, where they already have a uh, tested playbook because so many companies have already you know, set, set, set their feet here. And they could take advantage of this still Eastern European salary net or, or like all the other sort of resources that, that you require to, to build a site in a place like, like Krakow. And, and maybe, you know, Revolut and, and Uber are the examples, right, of companies that already see that and, and are locating those, those operations here in the, in the city. One thing that you mentioned is that the scale-ups come from expensive places. And I think, and, and I haven't articulated this fully, but I think there's something to it. And it's something around the fact that the people who are willing to put up with the high prices, crowded places, shit living, are the ones who are ambitious enough to build the huge companies. Um, and I, I, this, that is by no means a strong sort of a firm rule, right? Because you also have cities like Barcelona, it's, it's a lot more affordable, at least by sort of big city standards. And you got uh, unicorns and scale-ups almost everywhere at this point, well, which is also a trend that we're seeing people going away from the sort of the city centers. But I think there, there's something to, to it. Uh, and a good way of mixing it would be starting it somewhere where the capital and the talent is and the world capital and the talent is sort of gravitating towards. It could be London, Paris, Berlin, even, even a place like Munich and that sort of having part of the operations in a place like Krakow. It's, it's the billion or $10 billion question. Where to, where, where to sort of gravitate towards, right? I've, I've recently checked on, on Crunchbase. What is, the, what is the HQ location for UiPath? And, you know, obviously it's not, you know, Romania, right? It's, it's, it's New York in the U.S., right? So I think, I think when, it, when it comes to starting companies, it's still, you know, the, 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 the phrase that you can start anywhere is still very valid, right? But then what becomes challenging is where do you have access to the best people, the, the capital that you require to scale, Right. And unfortunately, in, it's in the places where the density of the network is the highest, right? And it's just going to be like that. So, so I, don't, I don't think we're going to see that part of the, the ecosystem being distributed or that part being, being fragmented. I think it's going to be highly concentrated uh, in a few cities that, that we know already, right? But then as scaling those operations will get more expensive and difficult for, 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 for other reasons. So for example, if you were to, to set up a engineering team of 50 people, how difficult it will be to do it in, in Berlin and London, right? Versus Krakow or Bucharest or, or Sofia, right? So I think we will see that the HQs are located in, in those hubs that, that where the density is very high, and then we will have satellite offices for other functions and this this should work as a as a connected net yeah you mentioned that we can still and start a company from anywhere and i think that's that's absolutely true what do you think are the biggest bottlenecks holding more people back from from starting more companies i think it's it's the it's the comfort zone right so and it's, it goes back to, to to what i said about krakow right so even though that we, we have super talented people, they are not that eager to start companies. Why? Because they have a very comfortable life, right? So they can work for Google and, and they can work for other companies that pay a lot, right? And, and, and you can still grow 
within those companies and 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 you can have some personal challenges that that you that you can achieve so so i think there's a there, there's something to to that comfort element and then i think it's i don't know where i read it but someone just just posted um, a, a a a an interesting thought that covid might actually be very positive in terms of entrepreneurship and and the drive of people to do something because suddenly they don't feel that comfortable anymore right and whenever they they feel uncomfortable they start to think and they start to you know experiment and and then do do stuff right so when you think about the different places where life feels not that comfortable right maybe those will be the origins of some of some companies great companies then they will probably gravitate towards the hubs, right? But but you know the origins might be might be there, and also when it comes to to motivation, like what motivates people to do something, I think I think you know that there's a ton of research on that. You know what motivates different groups of people, but when it comes to tech and then who starts, you know, companies, I think there there is like uh, this dominating uh, model of you know what what are the people who actually start businesses, and 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 I think this is very difficult to 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 change over time it, it's just the way it is so like if you look at all the successful u.s based companies that went really you know big most of the founding teams are somewhat similar it's, it's there's not a lot of diversity so they've been started by people who who came to the u.s maybe it's first generation maybe second generation they they they, they came from good sort of backgrounds and 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 they just you know found an area that was inefficient or was was lacking something and they started building experimenting in that in that area right uh, because of curiosity and and that's how those companies emerged so so yeah i don't i don't know the the the, the right answer and i don't know if there is a right answer in terms of what drives people and and and, and will we see this this spread across many different countries let's be hopeful that with all this you know innovation and all this drive to start companies and entrepreneurship we will see more more places light up in terms of how many companies get started yep let's be hopeful uh, i think that's a perfect note uh to end on so thank you so much we ran almost an hour and a half and it's been a fantastic conversation yeah it was awesome thank you hey this is guns again if you enjoyed this episode of the CW Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.